Greetings, my name's Adam, and this is talk number four uh, in a seven-part series on the book of Revelation. It's great to be sharing God's Word with you. If you don't have your Bible open, pause the screen, grab your Bible, open it up to chapter four. I want to start by asking, what do you think heaven is like? Lots of ideas out there about heaven. Uh, There was that book uh, released called Heaven is for Real. It's a little boy's story about how he went to heaven and came back. Sold millions, then they turned it into a movie and then no sooner did the movie come out, of course, the little boy fessed up and said, this is what he said, I did not die, I did not go to heaven. When I made the claims, I had never read the Bible. Uh, people profited from lies and continue to. They should read the Bible which is enough. And you th- no kidding, we should read the Bible. When we come to the book of Revelation, here in chapter 4, a door opens to the throne room of heaven. I wonder if you remember the bushfires. We saw drama and catastrophe in December and January, didn't we? We saw life threatened, danger, humans under enormous pressure, we saw humans both at their best and their, be- and their worst, true of any crisis. Firefighters who looked exhausted and charred and we saw flames, we saw sparks, we saw fire engines and hoses and darkness. And it was 24-hour rolling news coverage, wasn't it? And the news reports had this interplay between the action on the ground and then it will take you to a different scene in a different setting. What was that? We'd go to the headquarters, wouldn't we? And we'd hear the commissioner at the time, Shane Fitzsimmons, and he would speak and then we would listen and then Gladys, our premier, would have a go and they'd get their messages out and they would answer questions in the control room. And it's all in the background as well, the TV screens, the workers, uh, the communications, the radios, the technology, uh, comfy seats, air conditioning, maybe a Coke machine down the hall, who knows? It's a different space, isn't it? Completely. No one is pulling out hoses here at headquarters. So do you get that picture And see how different it is to the carnage on the ground. And this is like the movement we're making here now. We're moving from the action on the ground in chapters 2 and 3 as Christians do battle in the world. We're going to move to the throne room of chapter 4. Verse 2. At once I was in the spirit and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. That's a bit vague, isn't it? Verse 3, And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby. Precious stones come to mind. Gets you thinking about Ezekiel chapter 1. Precious stones, presence of God. Same thing happens. This is getting you ready for the end of Revelation 21, when the new creation and the eternal city is described. And then there's a rainbow a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircling the throne. 
that should get you thinking about God's faithfulness to Noah and beyond. It should get you thinking about Ezekiel chapter 1 again. That's mentioned. Uh, presence of God, all that stuff. Verse 5, let's jump down. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder. Every time I read that, I think Sinai. I think about our series on the book of Exodus. Israelites going, make it stop. Such was the presence of God. It's a picture of power. A powerful presence emanates from this throne. And now look at verse the second part of verse 5. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing, which tells you, uh, what is it? These are the seven spirits of God Sevenfold spirit, the fullness of the Holy Spirit. This is Trinitarian. If, uh, verse 6, also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. What on earth is that about? Uh, when you read the word sea in the book of Revelation, Jews identified the sea with chaos and evil. Uh, it's the abode of evil. It's the place in chapter 13 where we're going to see where the beast originates and comes from, rises out of the sea. And so the sea communicates the reality of evil. Uh, later in chapter 15, verse 2, a sea of glass will turn up. And it's amazing because... There's a picture of victorious saints who've been victorious over the beast, the evil one, and they're standing on it and they're dancing on it and they're singing the song of Moses because it's their territory now. It's like cricketers singing on a cricket pitch after they've won a test match. It's theirs. But here, before the throne of God, it is clear, a glass-like expanse which I take it to mean, you know, evil is real enough. But see here before the throne of God that it is quelled and subdued. It's bound. And then we know when we get to the end of the book of Revelation, it will be no more. There will be no more sea. Which is bad luck if you're a surfer, but that's another story. Ask me about that if you want to. God is on his throne. We are in the presence of God here. And notice that God is worshipped. Here is the next thing. You ready? In verses 6 onwards, 6b, through to the end of verse 11, we see God, as he is worshipped, uh, he's worshipped by his creation or things that represent his creation, I think. For example, four in the centre around the throne were four living creatures, Four, four corners of the earth. These are creatures that re represent uh, the earth and all its creation as creatures. All creatures of earth worshipping God, I think, is the message here. And again, these are not new beasts that we're seeing. We've seen similar before. Daniel 7, if you've done the reading. Ezekiel 1 again. Isaiah 6, strongly communicating the presence of God. But the nuance you've got to see is creation. That is there. Creation worshipping the creator. And who else sings uh, in this scene? Uh, come with me to verse 10. 
Or nine, whenever the living creatures give glory, honour and thanks to him who sits on the throne uh, and who lives forever and ever, verse 10, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever, just in case you missed that the first time. And they lay their crowns before the throne and they say and they sing and it's beautiful. Worthy, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. Creation worships the creator. But I'm thinking right now, you're wondering, well, who are the 24 elders, Adam? Because you skipped over it earlier, and let me answer that. Well, they sit on thrones, they wear white robes and, and golden crowns. And it gets you thinking, oh, hang on a sec, thrones... White robes, crowns, they're the things that were promised the early church in chapters 2 and 3, weren't they? That if they persevered, if they overcome, uh, these things are there. So Smyrna, chapter 2, verse 10, Sardis, chapter 3, verse 4, Philadelphia, chapter 3, verse 11, get to keep their crowns. And verse 21 talks about sitting on a throne with Jesus. It's incredible. And so there's a priestly thing going on because in chapter 5, verse 8, the 24 elders carry the bowls of incense, which are really the prayers of God's people. So can you see them serve God and they're serving the people of God as they carry their prayers in an intercessory kind of way? Maybe they're connected to the angels of the churches in chapters 2 or 3. That Somebody speculated about that. Oh, and they have harps. They have harps in chapter 5, uh, verse 8. So they're in the band, which is great. So who are they? Heavenly beings that represent the church at worship before the throne of God. But don't dismiss this too quickly. Think, think in heaven there are heavenly beings that serve up your prayers, our prayers as part of the worship of God on his throne. Delivering prayers to the throne of God as a central part of this worship. Which means that whatever our situation and whatever our prayer, you can know that in the throne room of God, God knows and God hears and God cares. Headquarters knows, they get the message. There's nothing in your life then that is outside of the scope of God's power, God's authority, God's knowledge. Nothing. Nothing. I wonder if that's a shock. Are you ever tempted to sometimes think that, you know, you wonder, can God be bothered with me? Why does God bother with me? Here is the answer. Absolutely God is bothered with you. Have a look inside the throne room of God. Here, have you done that lately? Look at it now and see the way God is making provision for you in his throne room. Can you see how deeply valued and significant the prayers of God's people are? As they're offered, presented to God. I mean, what a comfort this must have been to John and the early church who were persecuted. To read this, what a comfort this must be for us. 
And because our prayers are valued and significant, do you see what a great privilege it is to be praying? This should encourage us uh, to be prayerful and to seek to grow to greater maturity in our prayer life. That we might be praying kingdom prayers that reflect kingdom values. Prayers in the name of Jesus, remember, where we put his name on our prayers. It's worth thinking about and it's worth praying about. So the invitation now is to press pause and reflect on chapter 4 and 5, these words and these truths that we've just shared now. Spend a moment, come before the throne of God and pray. See your prayers come before the throne room of God and pray. Let's do that now. Chapter 4 tells us what is. God worshipped on his throne. And we play a part in that. Chapter (laughs) 5, this is the drama. Big drama. Uh, There's a problem in chapter 5. The problem is who can open the scroll. But when we think about the scrolls, in the Old Testament, Ezekiel, he was given a scroll. He didn't open it, but he was told to eat it. And the story goes, he did. Zechariah, he experienced scrolls that were flying. And the list goes on. Uh, What is on the scroll is also the question. Who can open it? What's on it? Uh, What is on it? The easy answer to that is that they... This scroll contains the decrees of God. The scroll tells the story of God's purposes in history. And we're going to see that unravel in the book of Revelation as we continue in the weeks to come. The scroll reveals God's words of his judgments, uh, but also his blessings. But the question again is, well, who can open it? And the answer, of course, is only someone special. Only someone special. Can anybody in heaven open it? Anybody on earth? Who is worthy to open the scroll so that these things can come to pass? And the answer, of course, momentarily, is no one. Chapter 5, verse 1, I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne... A scroll with writing on both sides, which means it's very detailed, and sealed with seven seals, so it's it's locked up. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the drama? Oh my goodness, can you see the drama here? But verse 3, no one in heaven on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. No one's worthy. And so John Weeps, verse 4, I wept and wept. Why? Because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Isn't it obvious? But we still know why. He's crying because if nobody is found to be worthy, then what is all this for then? If God's plans cannot move forward, what is the point of all this? What is the point of John Uh, being persecuted for the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. What is the point? What is the point if God's purposes are not realised and that the blessings of the new heaven and the new earth do not eventuate? Who then is the one? So that's why he cries. 
Who then is the one through whom God's purposes will come to pass? Who is worthy is the question. Do we need something of great power and strength to open the scroll? Maybe we need an Aslan. But this is not C.S. Lewis. This is not Narnia. But there is a line, the line of Judah. Genesis 49 verses 8 to 11, you can read about it. And as you see the line of Judah, so verse 5, one of the elders says to, to John, do not weep. See, the line of the tribe of Judah is there. The root of David has triumphed. Uh, so he also sees, he sees a lion and then he sees uh, the root of David, which is, he sees a stump with a little green sprig on it. That's the picture. Uh, that represents the long-awaited, anointed son of David, who we know to be... We know who that is, surely. And so John looks and he sees hope. And maybe he's thinking, surely the conquering lion, the son of David, will maul Rome, right? And certainly that's what the angels nudged. Hey, hey, have a look at this. But wait and look again because he sees something else and it is astonishing. It's a lamb. And the lamb takes from the right hand of God the scroll. And it's not just any lamb, it is a lamb that is slain. And as you read that, you should be asking, what on earth is a lamb doing there? What's a lamb doing there? Lambs are lion food. It's so unimaginably different from a lion. And it's lame. And of course we know that God in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ... He is the Lamb of God. He is the one uh, that has come to take away the sins of the world. He's the one that took on human flesh. The Lamb of God who was the sacrifice once and for all for sin. The perfect righteous one who was slain. You're supposed to see the crucified Son of God here. But also see the risen Christ, Uh, see power, standing before the throne of God. He sees the lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the centre of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures. The lamb had seven horns. So seven, absolute, complete, horn, power, absolute power. Think that. Uh, Seven eyes, seven, fullness, complete, Uh, eyes, vision, foresight, knowledge, absolute knowledge and vision and insight. Got it? I think you got that. Which are the seven spirits of God, sevenfold spirit, Holy Spirit sent out into all the earth. He went and looked. He took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the creatures and the elders fell down before the Lord, before the Lamb. And they get their band on, they've got their harps, and on it goes. Here he comes, the one who is both crucified and powerful. He is the one at the centre who rules everything. The crucified Son of God, but also the powerful, risen, ascended Son of God, is pictured here. The only person in heaven and earth the only one throughout the length and breadth of history fit 
to be entrusted with God's plans and carry them out, the only one is this lamb who was slain. But why? Verse 9, and they sang a new song. Here's the new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals. Why? Because you were slain with your blood. You purchased for God people from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on earth. Do you see why Jesus is worthy because he is the son of God that died for you. To free you from the captivity of sin and death and evil. To purchase for God a blood-covered, redeemed people of God. A kingdom. And that is why Jesus is worthy. A kingdom that... People that no longer belong to Satan, that ownership has changed, we now belong to God. A people from every race and tribe and language. Can you see that there is no race on the earth that is unaffected by this event, the execution, the killing of the Lamb? When God's people are in exile... What do they do with their harps? They hang them up. Here, though, it is time to sing. And this is a joyous time. See the responses to God in chapters 4 and 5 is to celebrate and to sing and declare praises to God for his goodness, his holiness, his his, uh, his creation, his power, his might, but also his mercy and his kindness as the lamb comes and spills blood and purchases for God a kingdom of people. It's a time to celebrate. Uh, the incense, prayers of God's people come into God's presence at this time and people sing. And what do we sing about? We sing the new song. We sing about Jesus. We sing about Jesus' death, that his blood has been poured out, which changes everything. That now Jesus can open up God's plans for judgment and blessing because of the cross. It can all now be revealed and it can all move forward as he has purchased people for God. That is not something that happens in the future. This is something that's happened in the past. So how is your glimpse of heaven working out for you? Is this your image of God and his holiness? Do you see that? Is this your image of what God has done for us in Christ Jesus? When you visit heaven here, did you expect to see the cross of Christ and the blood of the Lamb? Uh, shown there for you? Did you expect to see your prayers offered up to the Almighty God? Did you expect to see that? Man, that's heaven. It's amazing. We can come into God's very presence 
as people who are washed by the blood of the Lamb, purchased by the blood of the Lamb for God. Verse 13, this is who we are. We are God's people, not the devil's. At the heart of this drama is the crucified Christ. People talk about going and looking in heaven. Do they, do they tell you they see the crucified Christ? Do they see the resurrected, ascended king with power for all eternity? Do they see him? But the question for us this morning is, as we comprehend this vision, do you know him? Do you know this Jesus, the crucified Son of God, the risen Son of God, the one who knows you, already knows you, the one who loves you, the one who died for you so that you could belong to God and his kingdom, not the other guy? Do you know that about yourself? Do you see yourself that way? Are you praying? Are you singing, declaring the praises of God? Go out into the paddock, sit on the tractor, sing praises to our King and Saviour. Sing in the shower, sing in the car. We can still sing as the people of God. So with that in mind, let's turn to our next hymn.